This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. Let's introduce our thoughts this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. So Paul has affirmed here in this passage that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration means God breathed. God breathed. In other words, God chose certain men to receive the revelation of His Word and then inspired them with the ability to have that Word and to write it down in the book that we call the Bible. And indeed when we look at the Bible and examine the Scriptures, the evidence that the Scriptures are God's Word is just overwhelming. And the Bible is full of that evidence, far more than we can cover here in this study today, and probably in several studies if we should try to do so. This word Bible means book. That's all it means, book. If you've ever wondered where did we get the word Bible, it means book. But actually it's a collection of 66 books. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New. 66 books making up this one book, the Bible. The Bible was written by about 40 different men, 40 different writers. Think about that, writing these 66 books. And they wrote over a period of 1,600 years. 1,600 years this book was put together slowly, book by book. And yet when the Bible is properly understood and interpreted, there's not one mistake in it, there's not one contradiction anywhere found in Scripture. It all fits together so perfectly that it's easy to see it had one author, and that's God. It had one source, and that is God. And yet there's not a, there's not a book in the world that's been, that's been attacked like the Bible has. This book has been burned, it's been banned, it's been blasphemed, and yet it continues to be the world's best-selling book of all time, and there's a reason for that. The Bible's God's Word. It's the inspired Word of God. I want us to study that this morning and notice some proof, some proof uh, in abundance of just how easily it is to know that the Bible is God's Word. And we'll first examine proof from science, then I want to talk to you about proof from archaeology. We'll talk about proof then by prophecy, and then I finally want to talk to you about proof from the style of the writing of the Bible, how it's written and how it's put together. So let's talk about science first, and I would just simply say this, the Bible is, is not a textbook on science, it's a, it's a textbook on religion, and yet true science has never disproven anything in the Bible. In fact, true science always corroborates the Bible, always proves it to be God's Word, and it always will. Now science, of course, is fact. True science is just fact, it is truth. And yet there is something that's called false science. In the and uh, there's a lot of false science in the world today. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6 there on the back in verse 20-21, because Paul warned Timothy about oppositions that would come from false science. He said, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of science, falsely so called, 
which some professing have erred concerning the faith, grace be with thee. Amen. He talks about oppositions of science falsely, so-called. He talks about false science. And there's false science everywhere today in our world. Uh, it's in our major colleges and universities everywhere. All kinds of misinformation and false teaching. And especially there's a lot of false things about the Bible. But there's false things everywhere about science. Turn on uh, some of the television program. Turn on National Geographic Channel, for example. And there you'll find all kinds of false statements. Statements which cannot be proven. Statements that contradict the Bible. And people are expected to believe those statements. They are, they are made as if they are just facts, and they are not facts. And uh, one of the great hoaxes, I believe, that's being sprung on the world right now is climate change. Does the climate change? Obviously the, the weather changes, the climate changes from time to time, but it's always done that. And this idea of man-made global climate change is just false. There's no proof for this. What you have is a consensus of a bunch of scientists, and, and so uh, they've got some, some fact sheets and everything that they all consent to, but there's no proof for it. There are some computer models that they use to reach their conclusions. And there's a great consensus that the temperature of the earth is varying and that man causes this. There's not one bit of proof for that at all. And I know that's taught in our universities and colleges, and it affects our politics, and it affects businesses and commerce. It affects our personal lives. And politicians love to take this and tell us how we're destroying the planet. And we've got one lady right now in Congress that's telling us all, we've, all that we've got 12 years to get this fixed. And if not, of course, the earth's going to be gone and all that, and they have no proof whatsoever for this. <clears throat> but, as I said, it's the consensus of many scientists. Now listen to me. Consensus is not science. When you hear people say, well, science, scientists are in agreement. Science is not just being in agreement. Science is fact. Science is truth. There is no proof that man is causing climate change. There is no proof of that. And yet they purport that, that there is, of course, and so we hear all kinds of false science. We hear false science today about the dates and age of certain things, and they'll talk about canyons or mountains or earth formations and different things, and how many millions and millions and millions of years that it took to form these things. That's nonsense. Is God not able to creating things uh, that are just in, in full measure? completely full, like when He created man. Man didn't have to evolve. God created a fully grown man out of dust. There is no evolution of man. When God formed Eve out of Adam's rib, there was no evolution for the woman. She simply came from Adam's rib. And that's what the Bible teaches, and the Bible's right about that. This idea of, of evolution and such things, and carbon dating and, and things of this nature are simply inaccurate in their speculation. And there's no, there's no proof for this, for this kind of so-called science. Now the Bible, as I said, is not a textbook on science, but when the Bible touches on a matter of science, the Bible's always right. True science has never disproven anything in this Bible. Let me give you some examples of some pre-scientific knowledge that's found in the Bible. When I say pre-scientific, I want to show you things that were written long before man ever had the ability to find it out, to ever learn it as a fact. Let's take, for example, uh, a fellow by the name of, of Herbert W. Spencer. He was a great scientist, 
He lived between 1820 and 1903, and Spencer was hailed and credited for making a great discovery. You see, Spencer announced that there are, there are five great facts of science, or five manifestations of the unknowable, as he might put it. And he said that these are time, force, action, space, and matter. And he said anything that exists owes its existence to these five things, time, force, action, space, and matter. Sounded good. It's true, isn't it? It is true. The problem is that Moses beat him by several thousand years. In 1500 B.C., when Moses wrote the creation story, the first verse in the Bible announces these very five things. Genesis 1 and 1. Read it there. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's time, God, force, created action, the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Time, force, action, space, and matter. And Spencer put them in the same order that Moses did. I would say Moses put them in the same order Spencer did, but Moses beat Spencer by about 2300 years in announcing this discovery. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's time, force, action, space, and matter. There's the origin of everything, see. And so this was hailed as a great discovery, and of course it's true, but Moses had already written about it in the very first verse of our Bible. Secondly, if you'll notice this scripture in Job 26 and verse 7, Job mentions an empty place in the north. He says of God, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Did you know there's an empty place in the north? Well, we know that now because high-powered telescopes have been invented and people have pointed them all around our globe and everywhere they point them there are planets and stars and heavenly bodies and things, but when they're pointed north there's an empty place. We have discovered that empty place. Now Job wrote this about 2,000 years before Christ. Think about that. 2,000 years before Christ, Job writes, He hangeth out the north over the empty place, or stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. How does Job know there's an empty place in the north? The one that put it there told him. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Then secondly, in, in that same verse, Job 26 and 7, Job says of God that He hangeth the earth upon nothing. Did you know the earth hangs on nothing? Yeah, we know that, don't we? But you know, for centuries men didn't know the earth was suspended in space. Now, we know when things are, are put up in space they fall because of what we call gravity. That things just don't suspend up in the air like that. They don't hang on nothing. But the earth does. And we know that now. But how did Job know it? How did he know the Greeks for years believed that uh, Atlas held the earth on his shoulder because they couldn't conceive of the earth not resting on something. You know, something has to sit on something or it'll fall. But of course when Magellan sailed around the earth he didn't see Atlas underneath. And now that we have panned the earth, of course, with cameras and have flown around it and every such thing, there's nothing holding it up in space. And we've had shots from space of our earth just hanging up there. The Bible says that it hangs on nothing, but the Bible also says that He upholds all things by the word of His power, speaking of Christ in Hebrews 1 and 3. 
upholding all things by the word of His power. We call that gravity, but it's really the power of God. How does Job know the earth hangs on nothing 2,000 years before Christ? There was no way for Job to find that out scientifically, but God told him. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. <coughs> Isaiah writes of the earth as a circle. Let's read it. It is He, speaking to God, it is He that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. So Isaiah writes this about 750 years before Christ. Isaiah. And he says that the earth is a circle. How does Isaiah know in 750 B.C. that the earth is a circle? You remember in around 1500 when explorers started sailing out on our oceans. They were warned by people, don't go out very far on the ocean because they see they thought the earth was flat and they, they warned these sailors, you may sail off the edge of the earth. See, They pictured the earth, the oceans probably, having a great waterfall. And then all of a sudden a ship would just, would just go over and and uh, fall off the earth. But of course when Magellan sailed around the earth and came right back where he was to begin with, Atlas wasn't under there holding it up. And it was finally substantiated that the earth was a circle, that it wasn't flat at all. And yet for centuries men believed that. How does Isaiah know that is He, God, that sits upon the circle of the earth? God told him because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Magellan finally discovered that 2250 years after Isaiah wrote it. Then it was substantiated by science. See. Again in Psalms 8 and 8 we have a very interesting reading, but let me give you some background for it. The founder of, of the science of oceanography was a man by the name of Matthew Fontaine Murray. And Murray was not only a great scientist, but he was a, a reader of the Bible, a student of the Bible. And one day he had his son reading Scripture to him, and he was reading out of the book of Psalms. He got to chapter 8, verse 8. And there David wrote, The fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. David wrote about paths of the seas. Now David is a shepherd. David is landlocked. As far as we know, he was never on the oceans. He may have been there around the Mediterranean shores, but we don't have record of that. Uh, how does David know about paths in the seas, and what are those paths? Well, that was, of course, uh, Mr. Barry wondered at himself. And he said, you know, if the Bible says that there are paths in the sea, there are paths there, and I'm going to find them. He discovered these are the ocean currents, such as the Gulf Stream and other streams like this. The sea has currents in it. And man found that out years later when he tried to lay the transatlantic cable from America between America and Europe, and the cable snapped. And finally they figured out there's these paths of the seas that Mari had talked about, that the Bible mentions. They are the ocean currents. And when they laid the cable with the currents, the cables didn't snap. And they could actually lay them between continents. But how does David, a thousand years before Christ, know that there are paths in the sea? Man didn't know about that, did he? The fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God.
Secondly, the Bible is proven true by archaeology, and I could give an abundance of examples about that, but ever since the Bible was written, men have digged down into the ruins of Bible times, and things are always located where the Bible says, whether it's rivers or mountains or cities or towns or different things. And as man continues to dig, and, and archaeology, of course, is, is continued to be practiced, they'll always substantiate the Bible. Archaeology has never disproven anything at all in the Bible. It's always substantiated the Bible. And uh, let me give you a good example from Exodus 1 and 11. <coughs> Excuse me. Now this is when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, and they were slaves. And the Bible says in Exodus 1:11, Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. The skeptics, the atheists said for years that Pithom and Ramses didn't exist. Nobody had ever discovered those places. And of course it seems like the Bible always has to be proven, not the other way around. And, and so man said, well the Bible's a hoax. There's no Pithom, there's no Ramses, and yet they have discovered those. But uh, there was a man named Petrie, or excuse me, Naville, 1883, made the discovery. Petrie, 1905, Fisher, 1922. But there's something interesting. When they excavated at Pithom, they found some of the storehouses that are mentioned in the Bible. And let's look in Exodus chapter 5, verse 10 to 12. Uh, Moses and Aaron had come to Pharaoh, and, and they would told Pharaoh that, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go. And Pharaoh told Moses and Aaron, Hey, it must be because you Israelites don't have enough to do. You see, the Israelites were slaves. They had been making brick and building buildings, storehouses for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had been giving them straw to make their brick, and he demanded a certain number of brick be made every day. And so he told Moses and Aaron that he'd, he'd take away their straw. Let's read about it. The taskmasters of the people went out and their officers, and they spake to the people, saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye and get straw where ye can find it, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt, noticed, to gather stubble instead of straw. They excavated at Pithom, and they found some of these storehouses made with these bricks that the Israelites had made. They found out the very bottom portion, the very lower parts of the storehouses had brick made with straw. When they got up to the middle courses of bricks, they were brick made with stubble. When they got up to the upper part of the structure and looked at the bricks, the bricks had no straw or stubble. There was nothing in them. The Israelites had run out of straw. They would run out of stubble. See, and so they, they still had to make the same number of bricks, so they just made the brick without them. Exactly what the Bible describes here. Archaeology just proves the Bible to be true. Let's take the city of, of Jericho, Judge Joshua 6. <coughs> Excuse me, Joshua 6. Let's read verse 3 to 5, <coughs> and then we'll read verse 20. Joshua told Israel, Ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once, thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear the ark, uh, shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, 
and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Verse 20. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Well, they've excavated at Jericho, and they found something kind of unusual, very unusual in fact. When the walls of Jericho fell, they fell outward. They didn't fall inward. What does that mean? It means that there were no battering rams used by an enemy outside the walls. That Israel didn't push the walls in, because if you were breaking them, you know they didn't push them outward by themselves inside the city. They weren't going to do that and let Israel in. But the walls fell outward, implying, of course, that God pushed them out, because there were no battering rams used against them. They would have been pushed inward, see. So God pushed those walls out, and Israel went in and took that city. And this is interesting that uh, archaeology has made this discovery. The walls of Jericho fell in that fashion, just like we would expect God to do. So there's a lot more proof we could give out of archaeology, but these are a couple of discoveries that, uh, that I wanted to mention. Let's notice prophecy. The Bible's full of prophecy, and prophecy is... Uh, is great proof of the inspiration of the Bible. And in Deuteronomy 18, if you'll read with me, verse 21 and 22, uh, the Bible gives us proof when a person is a, a real prophet of God. And here it is. If thou shalt say in thy heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. So there's the, there's the, the way to determine whether or not any prophecy is from God. If a prophet gives a thus saith the Lord, if he speaks in the name of the Lord, and then what he says doesn't come to pass, then the Bible says that's the thing the Lord did not speak. And uh, let me give you an example of that from the Book of Mormon. Now we have the the Book of Mormon claiming to be by the Mormons, the uh, Word of God, another testament of Jesus. They claim Joseph Smith was a prophet. They claim that he was inspired, that he spoke in the name of the Lord, that he wrote this great Book of Mormon, and they tell us it's God's Word. The problem is the Book of Mormon's got error all in it. It's just full of error. And when you study the book, it's obvious it's a fable. But let me give you an example of one of Smith's prophecies that he writes here. And this is from the book of Alma. You'll find it in your third column down near the bottom in light print. Alma 7, verse 9 and 10. Read that with me. Now Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, and supposedly he, there was a prophet named Alma that made this prediction. Of course, this is really Smith writing this. It's not anybody named Alma at all. Smith made up this book. And here's how we know he did. Alma 7, 9 and 10. But behold, the Spirit hath said this much unto me. Now notice, he speaks in the name of the Lord. He claims the Holy Spirit made this revelation. The Spirit hath said this unto me, saying, Repent ye, and prepare the way of the Lord, and walk in His paths which are straight. For behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
and the Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth. And behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is in the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, and bring forth the Son, yea, even the Son of God. So Alma says here that, that uh, Mary would bring forth a son and that he would be born at Jerusalem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. The Book of Mormon says he was born in Jerusalem. A little bit of a mistake there, isn't it? I think so. The Bible doesn't make those kind of mistakes, but nonetheless, let's read some prophecy, some true prophecy from the Bible. Here's what Micah said about Jesus' birth in Micah 5 and 2. Micah says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah said that Bethlehem would be the place of the Messiah's birth, of the birth of Christ. And in Matthew 2, verse 1 to 6, let's read. Matthew says, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now they quote from Micah, listen. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. They quote Micah 5 and verse 2. When Herod wondered where, the, where Jesus would be born, where the Messiah would be born. And of course they tell him what Micah said in Bethlehem, and the Book of Mormon says Jerusalem. Of course, the Bible doesn't make mistakes about prophecy, and, and there's a reason for that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Peter said, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible has hundreds of prophecies. All of them are true. None of them are a contradiction. They all are fulfilled exactly as the Bible says. And the reason is that prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Men didn't make this up. Peter said, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God picked chosen men, holy men, and through His Spirit gave them His Word, these prophecies. And there's no mistake. When the Bible says something and predicts something, we can trust it. And when the Bible promises us there's a hell in the future, there's a hell. There's a heaven because it promises that. When it says Jesus will return again, Jesus will come again. And uh, let me give you a couple examples of prophecy. One of them from 1 Kings 13. Verse 1 and 2. This prophecy was given about 975 B.C. But let me give you the background for 1 Kings 13. After the death of Solomon, in our studies you'll remember we've talked about how there was a division among the children of Israel. 
Ten of the tribes pulled off and formed a northern kingdom and took a man named Jeroboam for their king. Two of the tribes stayed loyal to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So you had a northern kingdom called Israel that had ten tribes, a southern kingdom called Judah that had two tribes. Jeroboam was the wicked king that ruled the ten tribes in the north. And Jeroboam did not want his people, these ten tribes, going back down to Jerusalem to worship. Solomon had built a temple there. And Jeroboam was afraid if they went back to Jerusalem to worship, they would become loyal to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and they would kill Jeroboam and take his kingdom. So what Jeroboam did is, on the borderline between Israel and Judah, there was a city called Bethel. Further up northeast of there was another city called Dan. Jeroboam made golden calves, kind of like Aaron had made back at Mount Sinai. And he set up a calf and an altar down at Bethel. He put another one up here in the north at Dan. And he told the ten tribes, It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. And they, they burned incense and worshiped these calves. Jeroboam set up false priests that were not out of the tribe of Levi and out of the family of Aaron. He set him up a whole false priesthood to sacrifice as it, at his altar, see, and set him up a false religion in the north. And this became such a sin that God got intolerant of it. And God sent a young prophet up there to cry out against this altar. And that's 1 Kings 13 now. Let's read this scripture together. 1 Kings 13, 1 and 2. The Bible says, Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now picture, here's the king standing by his altar there at Bethel, and he's burning incense. And he, that's this young prophet, he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee, upon that altar, shall he offer the priest of the high places that burn incense upon thee. Now listen. And men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. So this young prophet comes out and, and he speaks against this altar and against Jer Jeroboam. And he said, there's going to be a prophet born to the house of Judah. His name's going to be Josiah. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to burn this altar right here. And all these priests that are offering here that are, that'll be dead when he comes along, he's going to burn their bones right here on this altar. Men's bones will be burnt right here. Now he names him as Josiah, doesn't he? And folks, this prophecy was given about 975 B.C. Now in 2 Kings 23, verse 15 and 16, here's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Let's read it. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place which Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he brake down, and burned the high place, and stamped it small to powder, and burned the grove. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres, or the graves, that were there in the mount, and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres, and burned them upon the altar, and polluted it, according to the word of the Lord which the man of God had proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Now this happened, this actual burning here, tearing down of that altar and such things, 624 B.C. The prophecy was in 975. The fulfillment was in 624 B.C., 351 years later. <clears throat>
But this prophet had named Josiah. Now, how would you like to pick out a guy 351 years from now, pick out his name, and then tell us some great thing he was going to do? That's exactly what happened here. He names him before hundreds of years before he's ever born, tells what tribe he'll be out of, and he was, tells that he would uh, tear down this altar and that men's bones would be burned on this very altar. That's exactly what happened. The Bible never makes a mistake. Here's another one in Isaiah 44, 28. Remember in the days of Daniel and Ezekiel, the Babylonians came against Jerusalem and they captured Jerusalem and they took Daniel and Ezekiel's other as captives down in Babylon. We've studied that in our study of Daniel. And they were down there in captivity for 70 years. But uh, Isaiah named a man named Cyrus who wasn't even born yet. Here's what he said of Cyrus. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. There's the prophecy. Again, Isaiah 45, 13. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city, and shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. In 2 Chronicles 36, now we have the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And Isaiah, of course, named a man named Cyrus who wasn't even born yet. And here's the record from Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36, 22-23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, that's the 70-year prediction, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of the heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all of his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. Now remember Isaiah named Cyrus. Cyrus wasn't born yet. Isaiah made his prediction in 712 B.C., 712 roughly. And Cyrus made this decree to restore and, and build the temple and such things in 536 B.C. Listen, that's 176 years later. But Isaiah named him before he was ever born, and he predicted that he would release the Jews out of captivity, which Cyrus did, and that he would rebuild the temple, which he did. He started that rebuilding. And we could just give hundreds and hundreds of these prophecies. The Bible's full of them. I've heard, and I never have counted or tried to count, but I've heard there are over 300, 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Bible, in the Old Testament that are fulfilled, over 300. And uh, the thing about the Bible is it's never mistaken in any of its prophecy, not like the Book of Mormon and these other books. I heard a guy one time make a statement. He said that uh, when the Bible said that uh, Jonah was swallowed by a whale or a big fish, whatever you want to call it, he said, I believe that. And he said, if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, he said, I'd believe that too. That's kind of about where I'm at. <laughs> whatever the Bible says, I've learned to trust it because it just doesn't make mistakes. So I would almost believe Jonah swallowed the whale. If that's what it told me, I would believe it. Nonetheless, we can trust what the Bible predicts, all of its prophecy. 
is always accurate and true, and not one prophecy made in the Bible has ever failed. Not one. Finally, the last piece of evidence I want to look at is the style of writing of the Bible. <clears throat> the Bible is a uniquely written book. Now, I've written a book, and, and uh, so I know a little bit about what man does when man writes. Uh, we have a tendency to be wordy, to over-describe things when we write, don't we? If you'll think about that. But the Bible has a different style of writing. The, the Bible has a lot of brevity. It's very brief in a lot of its descriptions about big things. For example, the creation story, listen, is told in two chapters. The creation, 34 verses. I'd spend more time in that telling you what the serpent looked like. If I were writing that story and I got to the part of the fall of man, I'd probably tell you what color he was, how big he was, how long he was, what his voice sounded like. You know, just exactly what that creature, I might have described Eve, I might have described the tree on that fruit, of the, uh, the tree of knowledge and good and evil, I might have uh, described the fruit there. Man just has a way of just going on and on with words, and God says things very briefly. When God talked about creation through Moses, He said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. He makes that statement. Well, I might want to tell you about all the turmoil and commotion that was involved in that, and the fusion of things, and the heat generated, and the steam let off, and just different things, you know, that, that might have been a part of that. Uh, man just has a tendency to over-describe. The flood, the universal flood that destroyed all but eight people, three chapters. Can you imagine what our newspapers would have written about a flood like that? They'd be talking about it for weeks and months, wouldn't they? The big flood of such and such date, see? And yet, three chapters. Folks, Jesus lived some 12,000 days on earth. When you read the Gospel of John, here's something interesting. 12,000 days. John covers 20 days out of Jesus' life. Now, John's got 21 chapters. He covered 20 days in the life of Jesus out of 12,000. When you read John's Gospel, you're just getting 20 days of the Lord's life. The greatest life ever lived. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, let me show you why. In John 14, John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus spoke those three chapters the night He was betrayed. John 17, Jesus prayed that chapter. There's four chapters right there in John. The very night that Jesus, the night before He died. Christ spoke three of them, 13, 14, or excuse me, 14, 15, and 16, and prayed chapter 17. That's four out of 21 right there. And John only used about 20 days out of the Lord's life. The Bible's very brief. This is the greatest life ever lived. John, when he wrote some of the miracles of Jesus, he said, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. John said, I could have given you many signs that Jesus did that aren't written in this book. The Bible is a very brief book. The death of Jesus, the greatest event in history, eight chapters. Eight chapters. The style of writing of the Bible shows it's a divine book, it's an inspired book, it's not written by man. And then the Bible also, unlike some of man's books, 
reveals great sins of its heroes and heroines. For example, uh, Abraham lied. Now Abraham's the father of the faithful. What did he lie about? He lied about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. Now she was his half-sister. But he lied and covered up the fact that she was also his wife. And the Bible tells you Abraham lied. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered, the Bible doesn't hide that. David is the man after God's own heart. And yet we're told about his great sins and his ultimate forgiveness, aren't we? The Bible doesn't cover that up. When Peter cursed and swore and denied that he even knew Jesus, the Bible doesn't hide what Peter did. It exposes his, his denial of Christ and his subsequent repentance. Again, when Paul persecuted the church, when he punished Christians, when he held the clothing of them that stoned Stephen, when Paul dragged men and women out of their homes and compelled Christians to blaspheme the name of Jesus, the Bible tells us about it. Paul was a murderer, and yet uh, a great part of our Scripture was written by Paul. Have you ever noticed when you read the Bible how much of it's written by sinful men? Well, really all of it. Think about that for just a minute. When you read the book of Psalms, that's written by David. What did he do? Committed adultery and murder. Does that make you quit reading Psalms? No, we understand David repented. He was flawed, just like we are. When you read the books of First and Second Peter, he cursed and swore and denied he didn't know Jesus. See? And yet we read those books. We profit from them because God cleans up men and uses them. When you read the writings of Paul, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and some think Hebrews, all of those books written by Paul, they're written by a man that killed Christians and that tore up the Lord's church. But the Bible does not cover up these sins. It tells us the sins of its heroes and heroines, see. And man's just not prone to do that. He would probably try to protect the reputation of these men and maybe let that kind of slide, but the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible's the inspired Word of God, and because it is, God's very zealous about it. Let's read some warnings in the Bible about changing that Word. In Deuteronomy 4 and 2, God through Moses said, Ye shall not add unto the Word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Proverbs 30, verse 6, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, John said, I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. God says, Do not add to my word, and do not take from it. The Bible is the inspired word of God, and God demands that we respect His word, that we give it reverence, that we be unwilling to change anything in it. Don't add a word to it. Don't take anything away from the Bible, he says. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. 
To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.